Greetings and welcome to the Wizard in the World podcast. I'm joined today by Hadir Safat, who is here to talk with us about all things friendship, yoga, Montessori. It's a true glorious mix. Hadir, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. How are you? I'm well. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's so exciting to have you. I know I'm so excited. I'm a bit nervous, to be honest, but um, I know I know that this podcast represents like everything raw and honest. So I'm excited to see where this conversation will take us. I'm so excited. There's nothing to fear. I hope at least. We met very <laughs> recently on a beach and it was a very synchronistic meeting. And as we met, I found out that you had just completed your yoga teacher training in, I want to say that it was in Bali. Am I right in that? Yes. Yeah. In Bali, in uh, Nusa Lambongan. Amazing. And I did mine there a few years ago and that is how we initially connected. And we ended up having a whole conversation that I kind of wanted to bring <laughs> into the podcast around change, <laughs> internal change, external change, friendships, judgments, the self, what that means. And I thought we could maybe start by you giving us a little bit of background about how you ended up in Bali and your journey to get you there. So Bali is actually a, it's a bit of a interesting topic because I applied to go to Bali and uh, as soon as I graduated from my undergrad, which was in 2020, and then COVID hit, so that got postponed and I wasn't able to go. And it was originally me and my best friend, we were going together. And then it just never happened. And then last year I graduated, I did my Montessori diploma right after my undergrad. So I decided, I, it's always something that I wanted to do because I've been practicing it for a few years and I wanted to deepen my self-practice. And then I signed up for it, so three years ago. And then only this year did I, I was like, why am I not doing it? Like, why am I putting it off? You know, like now the travel restrictions are not as intense. So why not do it? And it was, again, me and my friend, we were going to do it together. And then she backed out last minute. And I'm so grateful that it came the time it did, because I'm sure that if I had went in 2020, I, would, I wouldn't have been ready for everything that I was about to be mm. exposed to. And also not going with my best friend was, you know, I think was one of the best choices or fate or whatever you want to call it. Because I feel like when you're around people that you know, it kind of, you know, like subconsciously it, it cages you in because you, you know, like that person knows everything about you and you, you feel like you're restricted. But when you're put in a, in a foreign environment, it's like you're so open to everything. You're so open to exploration and discovery, self-discovery. When you're constantly around the same bubble of people and friends, I love my friends so much, but when you're constantly, you know, you see the same faces, it's like, it, it puts you in the same place, I think. And, Absolutely. Um, and yeah, and I think that's one of the main reasons I decided to go when I did. It was because I felt so understimulated, like I wasn't going up and I wasn't going down. I just felt like in a, I was stuck in a rut and I needed like to get out of it. And this was my first trip to ever like travel alone and go like across the globe. You know, I got so much resistance from my family, even my friends. Like, why are you going to go to Bali? Just go to Sehel and stuff. And I'm like, no, like Sehel can wait. Sehel's going to be there all year and every year. So I went to Bali and 
to be honest, it was life changing because I I went with no expectations. You know, like you know when you're just at a point where you're so indifferent to everything, so you're just doing it for the sake of doing it. I just went with no expectations. So I guess that's why I had the best time in my life because I made lifelong friends. You know, you instantly connected with every single one of them. And I didn't know we were going to be meditating every morning and doing breathwork. And, you know, if you'd asked me to sit down and meditate before I'd gone to this course, I would like laugh at I would laugh in your face. Like <laughs> I'm a very restless person. Like I don't, I really don't know how to sit still. So for, for you to ask me to just like sit and close my eyes and connect within would have been like impossible. It's funny what you were saying about going without your best friend, because when I did mine, I did mine in 2019 and I went with also knowing no one with no expectations, but as you said, with such freedom in being able to yeah. be uh, myself and what was funny for me at least when I went is I don't even know if you know that I'm a lawyer in my kind of normal quote-unquote everyday life mm. and I didn't tell anyone that there I didn't want to have that kind of judgment of oh you're a lawyer you do these things I didn't tell them anything about me I just I think I kind of avoided the question yeah I wanted to give myself permission to just be who I was not what I was and what came up for me was without any of those kind of judgments or ties, I was so happy and I was so free. And it was quite eye-opening because I thought, wow, if I, I'm this open and happy and free in my everyday with none of these like kind of judgments tying me down, why would I, why can I not be like that in my everyday? Why can I not carry that through or back? Yeah, I felt so empowered because I was, I it wasn't that I was, discovering who I was more than it was like shedding and unlearning everything that I'd um, learned back home and around the same circle of friends. It was like, you know, you're, you constantly have like these illusions all around you and they're illusions at the end of the day, but we make them, we make them so real. And when you, when you actually mm. take a step back and you start to reflect like one second, where is this coming from? Where is this value? Where is this belief? coming from and for me like I also I, I tend to to go into my head a lot so when I'm upset or I, I'm not a very confrontational person so I won't have like a direct conversation with you and, and then I'm the one that ends up suffering because I, I hold it in that's why I love meditation because it asks you where is your attention at and if your attention is caught up in something that's not serving you then you're gonna suffer a lot because it's like, it's just gonna grow, it's just gonna grow, it's just gonna grow. And I loved, um, I, I was reading the Think Like a Monk by Jay Shetty right before I traveled to Bali. And he was like explaining how meditate, like when they learned meditation in monk school, it's like opening the lights uh, inside a house, turning on the lights. And you know, you find everything around you is so dirty and there's dust everywhere. And then you start cleaning up and you know like the day finishes and you come the next day and it's you turn on the lights and a bit of dust accumulated and he and and he compared meditation to that and i loved it because he said it's it's not a one-time thing it's a it's a daily practice every day you're going to tune in with yourself and you're going to find the negative thoughts and you're going to clear them and you're going to observe them without judgment and you're going to let them go and i think that made me be like i was a lot less harsher on myself because I understand that every day I will 
I won't feel, you know, like so bubbly and I won't feel 100% energized. And, and, I, and it's okay, right? It's okay not to feel that way every single day and to just notice these emotions and let them go through you and not hold on to them because that's something I used to do before. So having like those tools were really empowering. I mean, what I love about meditation, although it's funny, I mean, I have to confess, I fall in and out of my own practice. I mean, it. it mm. I think especially when you develop a consistent practice, it takes very little for me to come back to my center. And it can literally be sitting mm. down for five minutes, four minutes even, and just breathing. But it's the resistances to getting myself to even sit down and do that. Because when the mind yes. carries you and catches you, there is such resistance. And I will do anything else. You know, it's, I will clean the entire house. I will call 15 friends. I will do anything <laughs> except sit with myself. I mean, I, I think I'm much more fluid in my approach now to all of my practices. And I think I'm sure that you'll see in your own practice as time or with time, it will it will evolve and expand and things will come, things will go. You'll have phases of more or, or, or phases of less. But when I had, I mean, I actually got very strict with my practice during the pandemic. I was alone in my flat and it was kind of the one thing that I had. I mean, there was nothing else to do, let's face it. I was stuck inside. You couldn't go anywhere or do anything. And I was like, well, I might as well meditate. But it was amazing <laughs> just watching the mind and using the meditation as a marker for how I was feeling and just kind of observing yeah. every day or then every week. And, and actually the shifts, and in some ways it helped me take myself a lot less seriously because I could have such intense waves of emotion or waves of very strong thoughts or feelings. And then, you know, the next day think, oh no, that wasn't, you know, that wasn't that much. Yes, definitely. Mm. I love that you use the word fluid actually, because I, I, I learned that the hard way in my uh, in Bali. So the last week I got injured because I was really hard on myself and I and I felt like the pain building up until it reached a point where my I injured uh, like my sciatic nerve and it got really bad. So I just had to sit out and it was so frustrating. But I, I guess I had to learn it the hard way because I would have never understood what it means to be compassionate with your own body and other people's bodies if I didn't experience the pain that I did but also fluid in the sense to just listen to your body. And yeah, and I think with meditation, like one of the only meditations that worked for me was actually watching my thoughts. And, and what this means is essentially just observing the thoughts move from one to the next and, and it takes you from there until I reach a point of stillness. Because as you said, you're, you're, it's so difficult to sit with yourself because you know your mind is always seeking stimulation always wants to create stories or time travel into the past or the future, never wants to be in the present moment. So I think meditation is really about practicing that, like anchoring yourself to the present moment. And, and I think that's why also breathwork really works because, you know, the one thing that you have from the moment you're born till the moment you die is your breath. And whenever anything changes, it is your breath. Like when you get angry, well, your breath and... changes. When you're happy, your breath changes. Mm. The body doesn't lie. So when I mean, you learn to know, exactly, yeah. The mind creates all of these stories. And I think that can be a bit of a, I don't want to say the danger of meditation, danger is maybe the wrong word, but I know that for people who are like, people who are very, very bright or very intellectual, meditation can sometimes be another form of a trap because actually 
some people feed the mind and so you know you you feed this narrative so you think you're meditating or you you tell yourself you're mm. meditating and you're actually just creating more and more narrative in the head and that is the i think the shift with the breath work is you know emotion that is tr stored or trapped in the body and that doesn't lie and you hear all of these stories and you yes. sit and you have your own experience of stuff that's released or stuff that comes out or you know people who burst into tears in the yoga class and they don't know why Mm. And it is that being released. And sometimes I think we we always want to know why. I mean, it's such a human thing. Why this? Why that? And I think one of the biggest lessons for me has been accepting that I don't need to know. I don't need to know what this emotion is that's being released. I don't need to give it an intellectual value. I don't need to analyze it or rationalize it. Sometimes it simply just needs to be felt and acknowledged and released. I mean, you know, the, the second that you try and give it any form of a label, you're tying it down, which is the opposite of what it wants to do. It just wants to go through you. I, I really needed to hear that today. <laughs> really? Yeah. What's going yeah, on? Yeah, I think, yeah. I th no, it's just, I, 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 I'm that type of person that tends to, you know, analyze everything. Why am I feeling this way? And like, just label everything. And, and I guess, it does it more harm because there are just some things you'll never know i guess so well there are some things also that we can't know i mean again it's it all of this comes with it, we all have kind of i always think of it like a spiral and so you you go through life and situations may repeat or seem like they're repeating but it's simply just a different layer of that spiral so you know if you imagine like a spiral going up 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 and even when we think we know or we think we rationalize we can only rationalize with what is within easy reach for our mind it might be something nothing you know that you have no recollection of what if it's something to do from a point of conception what if it is a cellular memory from a time that you don't have any kind of active recollection of you're not going to be able to get the answer so to speak and so mm, i actually read know, that in a in a book mm, yeah the my did you read the body keeps score I didn't, but it sounds right up my street. It's a lot of what you're talking about. But so you were saying that you injured your back. And I mean, I'm curious as to whether there was maybe some form. I mean, actually, having said we don't need to know why. I think the timing is kind of interesting because you said that you could feel it building up, up, up. I mean, how did it then heal? What was the process for that? So we practiced four hours of yoga a day and it was Ashtanga. So that was also a shock to me because I thought I was doing vinyasa. And Ashtanga is really like, it's, it's strength yoga. So you're building a lot of strength, a lot of muscle. It's intense if you haven't been practicing it for a while. So from like transitioning to like yin and vinyasa to Ashtanga four hours a day, sometimes full primary series was a lot on my body. And I felt the pain building up but I just kept pushing myself as because I, I tend to like, whenever I, I feel anything, I tend to dismiss it. So I kind of dismissed the pain. I was like, no, no, it's in my head. Like it's not, it's not real. And then until it reached a point where I couldn't sit, I couldn't stand. My right leg was, there was electricity all along my right leg. So it was just really uncomfortable. And I, I could not practice and I had to, walk a few like I had to keep moving because also sitting still was not gonna cure it. it took like two weeks to heal on its own 
quite quick actually that's great yeah I'm happy it wasn't there there was no nerve damage or anything but it was this close like I mean and how was the transition back into quote-unquote the real world it's been tough <laughs> so um, <laughs> I, I came straight back to Sahel so I, I didn't really get to work on practicing when I came back I tried every day to you know have a similar routine start with meditation a bit of breath work practice when I can but then I just find it very difficult to do my own thing because I I, I come from a big family so we're like eight I have eight siblings and wow really it's very yeah so are you the eldest or the youngest no I'm number six you're number six wow that's amazing wow yeah so it's it's very difficult to share your own space and to do your own thing because you know sometimes you know your sister wants to do something or your brother wants to do something and then you have your friends so it's it's just it's difficult to like at least i'm finding it difficult to really like have a routine but less on the physical side how was the mental readjustment because i know that for me at least when i came back from mine i i I don't know it was interesting when i went on my yoga teacher training i was kind of unsure what i was doing with my career i was you know having a bit of a moment of feeling like i wanted something to change in my life and I was hoping that I would go and fall in love with being a yoga teacher and then everything would be really clear and I would just be a yoga teacher and travel the world. And you know what? The opposite happened. I got there after one week. I was like, oh my God, what am I doing here? Get me back in the office. I'm so bored. I, literally, I was like, with the, I, was like, I, was like I, can't, I can't handle any more yoga chat or feelings chat and I mean, I stuck it out and, and there were parts of it, of course, that I loved, but it did bring up this resistance But it and it made it very clear to me that I was never going to be a yoga teacher full time. And there's nothing wrong with people who are. It just simply wasn't for me. I knew that I needed mm. like a different kind of stimulation or structure in my life. But what I did struggle with, it was, you know, my life felt much more slow and I would say slow on the inside. So I remember even going to like boot camp fitness classes and not being just feeling that it was so aggressive like the world felt so aggressive afterwards basically and I just wanted everything to like slow down and 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 people to be soft and there was a definite time of yeah of adjustment I yeah I I I think I'm going through the same thing in terms of feeling that that you want the world to slow down and to like just bring people on your wavelength (laughs) but yeah, so I, I actually went to Bali not with the intention to become a yoga teacher per se. I was doing it more to, to deepen my self-practice and to understand more to it. I'm not going to lie, it's been a struggle since I came back like mentally because um, in Bali I had such, you know, the connections were so alive. It, you mm. felt alive. There was so much, even in the comforting silence, you know, when we just be by the beach but like here I feel and this is something I I also struggled with before I traveled it's just the same it's the same everything there's no there's no essence to anything no evolution that no evolution and when you try to do something different it's like are you weird or (laughs) or you just don't you don't connect like 
I think people are really disconnected from themselves. So it's very difficult to have meaningful conversations with people because they're not people true are to so themselves. Afraid. So how can they? Mm. Yeah, I think a lot of people operate from fear and, and it ruins beautiful things because it's like, as you said, like these judgments. Well, These then, fear of, I mean, and illusions and... even today, I was actually meant to record a podcast episode with someone and they pulled out at the last minute because their partner was worried about basically about them airing their dirty laundry on the podcast. And it wasn't even going to be about their relationship issues, but it was so telling in like, it's a completely understandable human emotion, but it was so telling that it was this kind of attitude of, oh my goodness, no one can know that things are maybe not like perfect all the time. And no one can know that we have these issues or that I feel this way or that you feel this way. And we've just got to pretend and sanitize everything and put on a display. And it was just so amazing to me because, and that is why I created this podcast. I think people are so afraid to have real conversations and yes, they can be scary and yes, there can be resistance and I mean, you may find, I don't know, like I said, I, do, I it's funny because we, we really don't know each other. But for me, at least, a lot of my mm. friendships did shift. And again, it doesn't mean good or bad. It was simply that things fell away. Things fell away, but they made space for new things to come in. And one of the biggest lessons that I mm. learned is, you know, you it's very hard to embrace the new when you're holding onto the old. And again, it doesn't have to be a kind of like, well, we know, we're no longer aligned by forever at all. You can embrace and enjoy those relationships, but without making them necessarily your focal point and maybe creating space to meet people who are in the moment as you are like evolving in a way that you are or open to the same kind of things because it's, it's it's very I think it's very painful and restrictive when we feel I mean I used to get it a lot it's like people would be like oh you're so weird you're so different oh but you're so crazy you're always doing crazy things and I'm like what's so crazy about it you know what's so crazy about being creative what's so crazy about trying something new I mean god forbid we don't do anything new are we just going to sit here and rot and wait till we die <laughs> yeah sorry that was it's a bit of a, a rant <laughs> No, but it it it's I I relate I I think it's this you know like dichotomy be, between the new and the old and and embracing like making space creating space. It's so hard to do that when you're holding on to the old, and this is something I'm still working on myself. I, I think that's what yoga is for me as well. Like I I feel like when I when I practice yoga, I create space, or take up space, and mm. I create space, and I. And a lot of the time when I feel like I'm in environments where, where, where I'm, I'm being limited or I'm being caged, it's like the opposite of creating space. It's like I'm, I'm all curled in and I'm all, I feel like I'm suffocating. <laughs> and, mm. and, it's, and, it's, and, and I think it's also, it comes from that place of, you know, you're, you're not acting in alignment with, what you're thinking so it creates this disappointment or it creates this feeling of being stuck absolutely yeah and to be honest with you i'm still struggling with that and i'm still like navigating my way through it if i was to say with this magic wand you could make any change that you want instantly what change would you make 
That's a tough one. <laughs> but like, in what aspect? Because what I'm hearing, what I'm hearing you say is that there is a certain sense of discontent or restlessness or not feeling sure or not feeling fully nurtured by the soil that you're currently in. And so what is something that you could see changing or maybe something new coming in or something that you let go of that would help you make that soil more fertile? Mm, that's a tough one. I don't know. I, I, I guess it would be like just being lighter, be like floating and not like non practicing non-attachment. Mm, you know what? That's so funny because that was my, that was a game I played with myself this weekend. Really? Yeah. I found myself, I'm, I'm in a, I've been saying on the podcast recently that I'm in a phase of transition. And part of that transition is, yes, internal, but it's also external and some factors that are kind of um, out of my own hands. And I'm someone who is usually very in control of my life in the sense that, you know, I'm quite proactive. I'm extremely organized. I get things done and it's just, you know, I know what I'm doing and when. And so it's very uncomfortable for me to be in situations. I mean, as much as I say, go with the flow, I do, but I'm mm. also, I, I'm also kind of directing the course of my life to a certain degree. It's a subtle balance that is sometimes hard to explain. On the one hand, yes, you need to create space for the magic of life, for God or the universe to guide you. And at the same time, you also have to be putting, like taking some form of action in order to be guided. Like, you know, you're not going to be struck by lightning if you just sit at home waiting for all these things to appear. Mm. It's really hard to find that thin line between just being and, but also not being passive. Yeah. And that's why I like to call it course corrections, which is, you know, I take action, but I'm, so you, for me, it's okay. I take action with intention, but I release the outcome. So maybe I hope that, uh, so for example, let's take the podcast. I want to create this podcast. I feel like it's the right thing to do. Yes, I would love for it to be hugely successful, but I'm not doing it for it to be successful. I release that outcome. All I have to do is do it and trust that the rest will come. Do you, do you see what I mean? Or like, yes, I yeah. will, with whatever it is in your life, you can apply it to anything. So I have this aspect of my life at the moment, which doesn't really depend on me. So I'm a party to it, but I'm not controlling the outcome or like a big aspect of it. So there's a big part that's uncomfortable for me because I'm like, oh my goodness, you know, what's going on? And so the game that I was playing to myself this weekend was in every interaction that I have or in every situation that I'm faced with, can I approach it with pure joy and pure openness? So the mm. second that something maybe doesn't go to plan, the second that something gets canceled, the second that something changes, because also like I'm that kind of person where if I think a plan is happening one way, I struggle if it changes. If it mm. does change, can I approach it playfully? Like literally like a game. And it was funny because, you know, if I said to myself, oh, be more relaxed, I mean, that was never going to get me anywhere. But something about the mental framework <laughs> of saying, okay, this is a game that I get to play and I get to approach all of this with lightness I actually made it much easier and there were you know I did very well the first few days by the third day I didn't do so well but I was able to say okay two <laughs> out of three is a good start and 
laugh at it. And I think humor is essential, you know, just laughing at ourselves yeah. and I love that. I yeah, I think it's it's just the intention that really matters. Because even if it doesn't go as joyful as you intended it to be, at least you're operating from a place of openness and lightness, you know. Mm. I mean, there's a story that I feel that compelled to share with you. I don't know why, but it's just it came to me like 10 minutes ago and I've been waiting for it to go away, but it's just waiting to be told. So I feel, I feel like I have to tell you the story. Yes, please share. <laughs> we'll see, we'll see, we'll, we'll see what comes out of it. But I think it ties into following the joy and dare I say the absurdity of life. So a few years ago, I went through <laughs> a bad breakup which, and I say bad, it, nothing was terrible about it. It was simply painful. And, you know, by that virtue, probably all breakups are bad. But I went through a painful breakup and I read this book called The 40 Rules of Love by Elif Shafak, which <gasps> I love. Oh, I know. It's amazing, isn't it? Is that one of your favorite books? Okay. Yeah. Okay, yeah. there's a point. The story needed to be told for a reason. So, <laughs> so I read this book, The 40 Rules of Love, which for anyone who hasn't read it, I highly recommend. It is such a beautiful book on love, on life, on spirituality. And it's about my favorite poet, Rumi. And I read this book and something about this book healed me. I read it at a time that, that I was writing my own poetry books. And you actually see references to this book within my poetry. Time goes by and I meet someone else. And this person, I had given them a copy of this book because I loved it. He was abroad and I was in London. And I remember he called me up and it was the day before Valentine's Day. And he said, well, Emily, I've, I've been reading the 40 rules of love. And I realized that I'm not living my truth because I've been reading Shams of Tabriz. And, you know, basically <laughs> I realized that we can't be together. And I was like, are you fucking joking? Oh my God. <laughs> I was like, this, this book healed my heart. But I gave it to you and you're breaking up with me because of this book. I mean, this is, this is fucking crazy. I was like, what the hell? And I was at work and I was just like, oh my God, this is, this is you know. We, we hang up the phone and I, I needed some new earphones, some new AirPods. So I decide that now is a good time to take myself to the Apple store. And I can't remember if I went the same day or the, or the day after, but I'm feeling very sorry for myself. And I walk in and there's this guy who approaches me who works at the Apple store called Jeff. I mean, and he stuck with me. And I, honestly, I was like, I don't know if at the time I was like, I don't know if you're an angel, or if you're a real human, because he was so eccentric. He had this crazy spiky hair and these huge yellow glasses, like as in yellow lenses, almost as if he was like a cyclist or something. But he was, you know, on Regent Street in London. It was very odd. We're talking and he's like, Emily, I can see, you know, if you allow me to say, I, I can see that you're very sad. And I was like, yes, Jeff, I'm very sad. And Jeff says, well, why don't we do some breathing? So I was like, okay, Jeff. So <laughs> Jeff gets me to stand up in the middle of the Apple store. And he's like, imagine smoke coming in through your feet. And as you inhale, lift your arms up to the sky. And the smoke comes up and is clearing your body, exhale as the smoke is released through the soles of your feet, taking all of the negative energy with it. And I was like, wow, that's so powerful, Jeff. He's like, yes, it's a Sufi breathing technique. And I'm like, Jeff, don't joke. The reason I'm sad is because <laughs> I just got dumped because of this Sufi book called The 40 Rules of Love. 
And he's like, Emily, we were meant to meet for a reason. You know, why don't you come and join me and my Sufi friends on a Tuesday night? And I, I was like, this is a sign from God. I was like, yes, Jeff, I will come meet you and your Sufi friends on Tuesday night. <laughs> so I took my friend, Sarah, who, if she's listening to this, will laugh at this story. And off we went to find this, this gathering of people. And it was, I think if, I can't remember, I think it was near Paddington Station. And I mean, my father, my father, when I told him this story afterwards, was like, you're insane. How could you possibly go to this place? But so off I go and we arrive. And it was a very odd kind of interaction where we're all in a, in a circle and they basically get us to dance together and to sing this song, which I would sing, but I don't think I will. But basically it was like, <laughs> maybe I will. It was like, peace be with you, with you be peace. And you had to go around in a circle <laughs> singing this to people and doing like moon songs and I don't know what. And you know what? I haven't laughed that much. I hadn't laughed that much in so long. And we just laughed and laughed and laughed for an hour. I mean, at how insane it all was. And then when the hour was up, it was a little bit sectish. Everybody suddenly like, you know, with no real warning, all of these people kind of came in and then sat silently in rows. And then this guy came sat at the front and it all just got a little bit preachy. And I thought, no, this doesn't feel quite mm. right. And Jeff came in, but it was like, suddenly it was very weird. And we were like, no, we don't want to be here. And so we left. But to this day, it's one of the funniest stories and experiences of my life. And, you know, if, I don't know what the the moral of the story is, but to some degree, I think it's staying open to all of those kind of crazy connections and magic. And, you know, if I hadn't been open with Jeff about what I was going through, you know, all of these little nuggets of connection that bring us somehow to some place. And to this day, that story makes, I mean, I cry of laughter every time I message Sarah about it, which is, you know, every few months I'm like, peace be with you. (laughs) (laughs) That is the strangest story I've ever heard. It's so oh, insane. But anyway, I, mean, I felt that I had to tell you. Honestly, The 40 Rules of Love is one of my favorite books. I actually read it first time in 2016. And then I read it again when I went to Bali. And I just saw it mm. completely differently. Learned new lessons. Um, but yeah, that, that is That's so, so interesting strange. because <laughs> I actually reread it as well this year. No way. Me too. So actually, really? this time, the, the most, yeah, the, like the biggest lesson that I walked out with this time when I read it, and I don't remember the quote, but basically something around the lines that if you travel within, it's like you've traveled the whole wide world and beyond. And I never really understood what that meant until I experienced it. I had an out-of-body mm. experience in Bali with uh, one of my meditations and i understood what it means to like so basically it was we we experimented with a lot of meditations in bali and this one was eye gazing meditation so you sit across the other person and you stare into their eyes and it's so strange because a year before i'd always tell my best friends you know i keep staring into people's eyes and i feel a connection and i find it so weird because like it's it's obviously creepy. Like you're not supposed to stare into people's eyes. <laughs> so <laughs> when when we when they were telling us that we're gonna be doing eye gazing meditation, I was like, yay! <laughs> so 
actually the girl that I was doing the meditation was we, it was our first time to meet so we didn't know each other and at first there was a lot of resistance on her end so I felt it like she just would not let me in until we reached a point where she did let me in and by that point I think it's also the intention because I, I didn't want to, to anything I just I just wanted to be open and and at that point I just felt like I I don't know how to explain this. I left my body quite literally from the crown of my head and I was floating on top of it. It was still. Everything was still. Like, I got lost in time and space. I'm not joking. Like, had he not called us back, I probably would still be out. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe maybe not. But, like, I, I actually... I've never felt so pure and light in my life. And when I when when we were called back to return, I felt so heavy and all the mm. burdens that I felt before returned with me. But you know I was okay with that because I felt like experiencing my true self or whatever you want to call it or higher consciousness, it it showed me like that your your essence is pure, your soul is pure. And it's the worldly mm. things around us that taint everything. You know, again, going back to these illusions and 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 that's where burdens come from, right? This, this like social pressure or this this pressure that emanates from any aspect in your life. It's it's an illusion because it's the perception that you give it. So when you experience something like that, it puts everything into perspective because you see the bigger picture, I guess. I don't know if this sounds too hippie or no, it makes uh, sense. No, I mean, my explanation is not doing it justice anyway, but we're spirit. Yeah, it was a magical experience. Yeah, we're spiritual beings having a human experience. Exactly. And there is, because I had a similar thing to someone where I said, oh, what about this heaviness? And they said, but you are spirit, soul, inner body, matter. And so it is the light in the in the heaviness. And that is why... I mean, it's interesting, the person who was telling me this practices a lot of Tai Chi and Chinese medicine and is studying acupressure and was saying how, you know, that is all reminded me of the importance of the physical practice as a mechanism of clearing the vessels so that you can then experience the lightness of the soul because the body does accumulate mm. and it has this kind of heaviness. I mean, it, it is, it's here, it's grounded, it's gravity. And that is why it's so important to kind of keep it moving. And that's funnily enough something that came to me when I had a similar experience that I told you about when we met, which mm. many, many, many insights came and it was really profound. And I don't use that word lightly, but it, it did change my view on so many things. But one of those was like the need to take better care actually of the human vessel. Oh, that's amazing. I'm loving this. I'm loving this chat, by the way. This is such good juju. <laughs> I, I, I just wish I could give this experience to everyone because I feel like I've become a lot more compassionate as a person after this experience. And I always Beautiful. try to see the good mm. in people. Like I, I really do, you know, I'm I think that's the problem. I think it's a problem with me that I never look at it as right and wrong black and white even when it could be clearly like it's black and white but i always 
put myself in this person's shoes and try to understand why they act the way they are. Or I guess also because of my Montessori background and child psychology, I I don't well, know. Amazing segue, it's... because that's what I wanted to come on to. <laughs> but before we do, I just have to say, I don't think that being compassionate can ever be described as a problem. It is a gift and one that the world is lucky to have in you. So never change that aspect of yourself. Oh, thank you. <laughs> mm. But tell us more about the Montessori, because I was telling you that I am a Montessori child. I know. <laughs> maybe, yeah, which I, I feel like as a an almost 30-year-old, I shouldn't feel that excited or proud by, but I am. <laughs> <laughs> um, maybe for people who don't know what Montessori is, you can tell us a little bit about what it is and about your background in child psychology, and we'll take it from there. Yes, so uh, can I just say that I think I, anyone that is Montessori schooled, they just automatically stand out. Like, I wish I was Montessori schooled. I mean, like, we met our first, our, the first time we met, we, we connected instantly, but I just knew you were different, like, just before we even spoke. You know, like, learning is a natural process, right? Like, it begins at birth. Like, if you look at a child, before setting foot in their first classroom they're always touching everything they're turning it around they're tasting it and it's all in pursuit to explore and discover the world around them right so the montessori approach honors this inherent desire to learn in contrast to traditional education they treat the child as an empty vessel right that's waiting to be filled by the teacher but in montessori we recognize that the child has these powers to self-construct themselves so, you know, uh, they call them like sensitive periods where you'll find the child suddenly attracted to voices and sounds. And it's to acquire human speech, right? To be able to adapt into your immediate environment. Or it'll be attracted to colors and shapes and, 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 and textures. And it's all to, you know, refine their senses and to be able to categorize the world around them and to differentiate and, and see the finer differences between things. So it's all like building their intelligence, right? So after, so I, I did my Montessori diploma and I came back to Egypt. And when I came back to Egypt, I founded Revere Montessori. And Revere actually alludes to the deep respect that we have for each individual child in the, in the, in the work they do to construct love themselves. That. Yeah. So it's, it's, you know, like, each child obviously is unique and has their unique learning tendencies, but there is a universal truth amongst all children, and that is that they need help to be able to follow their path of development, right? So this is what Revere does. We provide a carefully prepared environment with specially trained teachers. We actually don't call them teachers in Montessori. They're called directress, a directress or a guide. And the idea is that the the teacher is the environment the environment is the teacher and the and the the directress is there to guide the child to link the child to the environment by showing them how to use the material in a way that they can incarnate the knowledge that the material is trying to give you have a background in child psychology and revere is a new institution that you're opening which is amazing and it's based yes. in cairo yeah, so Revere Montessori is actually just starting with one classroom 
and it's called the Children's House or Casa de Bambini. And this is for ages three to six. And we're only opening one classroom because we really want to perfect. It, it's really hard to start a Montessori school because you have to start bottom up. So you can't have a six to 12 classroom if you don't have children that were educated mm -hmm. in the three to six classroom. So the, the plan is to grow with the group of 30 students that will attend a three to six classroom. And then the next year, maybe open two to three, three to six classrooms, as well as a six to 12, and then a 12 to 18. So if you have 30 kids, you have one lead teacher and one assistant. The idea behind that is that you're not supposed to, like too much adult presence makes the child very dependent on the teacher, but also in their self-confidence. So if they're always waiting for the teacher, or always waiting for validation from the teacher. Or, so like if a child is using the material incorrectly, we will never go say, this is how you do it. No, we will observe or write down a point of consciousness. And the next time they choose that material, we will give them a representation. But, not, but we will not say you've been using it incorrectly. We'll just, it's, it's a matter of role modeling and repeating mm. because repetition makes perfect, right? So it's like we're, we're building this self-confidence in the child and this concentration because also, you know, the, all, the, all the activities are based on, you know, like the, they, they always say like the child is the designer of these environments because Dr. Maria Montessori, when she was designing the materials, she was she was designing them based on what the the materials that the children actually chose and she started removing and taking away the ones that the children did not choose so it's very much you know each child following their own interest and going on from there that's amazing i love it and i'm so excited do you have a launch date we're supposed to be opening next september so not this one so 2023 I would love to disclose the location, but I'll just no, keep it keep, keep it a surprise. Come, come back come back on the podcast yeah. when you're about to open. This is so exciting. Yes, definitely. We are coming up to the end of the episode, but before we go, the way that I've been closing them is asking all of my guests, is there anything that you want to ask me? Ask me anything. Too many questions, Emily. <laughs> we need a coffee date. Um, <laughs> I actually wanted to ask you, why did you move to Egypt? Why Egypt? Oh, that's a great question. It's not a, it's, well, the, the truth is I, I didn't plan it. That is the shortest, simplest, most truthful answer. I have a long history with Egypt. I've been coming to Egypt since 2010. I grew up around a lot of Egyptians through family, friends, and was coming every year, um, sometimes several times a year. I felt, I always felt very drawn to the country. I mean, the first time I came to Egypt was actually when I was nine years old with my father. And then again, in 2010, I was 17. I actually spent my 18th birthday here and I fell in love with it. I loved the country, I loved the people, but I never really, I mean, it, it's, my friends laugh at me now because in like 2014, I think it was, I was saying, you know, I could never live here. There's no way. Cause it had kind of like cropped up as a potential consideration. Fast forward to COVID. And I think COVID changed a lot of things for many people, not least me. 
I spent the first lockdown completely alone in London and was so socially deprived in the sense of it really made me look at myself and think, okay, what what do I want in my life? And things become quite clear when, you know, especially now we look at COVID and it doesn't seem so severe, but at the time that it started at the very beginning, I was personally terrified. You know, nobody knew what this thing was. Nobody knew if we were going to make it out alive. My parents live in different countries and both on different continents. You know, I was effectively felt very alone in London. Anyway, so I do that first lockdown and eight months after, so Christmas 2000 and Christmas 2020, my Egyptian friends say to me, come and spend Christmas with us. And I say, great, I'd love to come. And I pack a suitcase, first time in my life that I've underpacked, literally have nothing in it. And I said, okay, great, I'll come. <clears throat> and what's so funny is that I remember having a lunch and someone said to me at the lunch, how long are you staying? And I joked and I said, forever. And you know, when you say something, and it's a joke, but then you're like, <laughs> oh, wait, that's that that rings true in my soul. It was one of those moments I was like, oh, hello, okay. Still mm -hmm. didn't think much of it. Lockdown started again in London. And I said, no way am I, you know, I'm not going back for lockdown. I'll just ride out the lockdown wave and I'll stay a little bit longer. But I thought, oh, well, I can't stay with the friends that I'm with. I need to get my own place and I need to get a visa. So it really was in flow because I remember the day that I went to get my visa, I just kind of decided that I was going to go get it that morning. I didn't really have anything with me. I mean, obviously I had my passport, but it was, you know, nothing had been prepared. I went to Abbasaya by myself. They all saw me walk in. I think everyone was like, what is this chick wow. doing? Yeah, yeah. I literally just was like, <laughs> hey, I need a visa. <laughs> and the worst part was is that like at the time, my Arabic wasn't as good as it is now. I mean, that's presupposing that you think it's good now. But anyway, mm. so I could say I could say things that I needed to say. And so at one point, I basically thought someone had taken my passport. And I was saying, like, where's the guy gone who's got my passport? And this other guy is speaking back to me in Arabic, but I don't understand. And I'm telling him in Arabic, I don't understand what you're saying. And he's like, but I don't, you're talking to me in Arabic. What do you mean you don't understand? And I'm like, listen, I can tell you what I need to tell you, but I don't understand what you're <laughs> saying back. Anyway, I get my passport, I get my visa, and everything turns out really well. They actually, like, it they were amazing. Everyone there was fantastic, super helpful. Everyone's always shocked when I say that, but it was actually a very good experience. And that same day I was like, oh, I think I need a flat. So I said that to a friend and this friend was like, oh, try this uh, estate agent. I sent her a text and she said, oh, I have a flat you could view today. And it's the flat I live in now. I walked in, I fell in love with it. And I said, oh, I'd like to sign for a few months. She said, well, I'm not signing for less than a year. And so I signed for a year, but at that point in time, I still didn't think that I would stay. I thought, okay, I'll sign for a year. And if I have to leave, I will just give up the lease or sublet, or, you know, I'll find, you know, whatever. That's how, that's how it wow. happened. It's just yeah. living in the moment. Yeah. It literally, yeah. and, and, and so one thing. But so brave. Yeah. Well, well, that's why I always joke, you know, if I had planned on, like, if I had planned a move, it would have seemed terrifying. I would never have done it. But actually just being here and having to figure it out. Mm. And also because of various circumstances at the time, I was figuring it out pretty much alone. You know, there was no, it, it, I just had to do it. There was like failure wasn't an option. And, mm. you know, that's quite like, that can be quite scary, but also that kind of 
lights a fire under you or under me anyway, which is right. I've got to, I've got to sort this and, you know, and, and yeah, life just, life just unfolded and one thing led to the next. And, and here we are. And even today when people say, how long are you staying? I'm always like, oh, there's something around like I, I to be continued. <laughs> yeah, I just, you know, I, I might be here for 50, 60, 70 years, who knows, but I need that mental freedom of knowing that it's unwritten and knowing that that is so liberating. Yeah, knowing that life will guide me. And maybe some people will view that as non-committal. I don't know. But for me, it's I know that when I, you know, whenever I thought I had everything planned out. I mean, especially with the pandemic, everything that I had planned, for example, in the pandemic summer, everything got cancelled. All mm. the things I did end up doing were Same. completely unplanned, yeah. but were amazing. And, you know, I remember that's actually... That's the biggest lesson for, with the pandemic. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. To just go with it. And I mean, funnily enough, like it's also going to sound very woo-woo, but I saw a um, a tarot card reader. I mean, that was one of the things that I kind of started doing during the pandemic. I was like... <laughs> I literally didn't know what to do with myself. So I basically, <laughs> I'm meditating every day. I'm seeing all of these gurus because it's like, there's no one else around. And I remember, I remember her saying to me, you're going to move country. And this was like three months before I moved. Really? And I was, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was like, no way. I was like, there's no chance. I have a three-year lease in London. This is where I am. I'm settled. And she was like, no, you're going to move. And I just thought, well, whatever. She's, you know, but yeah. The mind cannot, you know, this is one of my favorite things to remember or to remind myself of is the mind cannot imagine what it hasn't experienced. And we often want to imagine our future of thinking it's going to be so great. But actually, what if we're limiting ourselves? What if there is an even better future that is waiting for us, but mm. we can't imagine it because we don't know it? I love that. Yeah. And by putting these mental kind of constructs, we're limiting ourselves from experiencing an even better reality. I love that. So that is my that is my very long but also short story as to how I ended up. Here. <laughs> it the has been to end. Yeah. Yeah. It's been such a pleasure having you. Thank you for your honesty. Thank you for your vulnerability. Thank you for sharing for your time. Thank you Thank so you to much. Everyone for listening. And we can't wait to see you next time. Thank you for joining The Wizard in the World. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Don't forget to rate, review, share, and subscribe. Thank you so much for all your support. We can't wait until next time. Until then, don't forget to stay magic.